Today I am very honoured and blessed to be with Norman Seligman, the CEO of Sydney Jewish Museum, whom I met a few minutes ago when I came here to visit Eddie Jacku, one of the Holocaust survivors, and I believe there's about seven or eight survivors that do regular talks here. So welcome, Norman, and could you please explain to our listeners about your role here and when this Jewish Museum started and so forth? Okay, Beverly, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you today. Um, I'm equally honoured to talk to you and have this opportunity. Uh, so a little bit about the Sydney Jewish Museum. Uh, it was opened in 1992, so next year we will be 30 years old. Wow. Uh, we currently, just pre-COVID, so let's just, and we're getting back to, fortunately, we're getting past the, the COVID problems in Australia, but pre-COVID in 2019, we were getting about 60,000 visitors a year coming to the museum. Wow. Of whom about half of that, nearly 30,000 school students, and of those 30,000, 90 to 95% are not Jewish. So that's very important. And we are educating all of the students that come here consistent with the school syllabus. So we are really growing and we're very, very happy with that. Um, you were talking about survivors a little earlier on, and you mentioned seven. In fact, we have more than 40 Holocaust survivors Wow. Who, who are volunteering at the Sydney Jewish Museum. Uh, and most of them will speak to school groups when they come here. Uh, now, a typical visit by a school student to the museum uh, involves three hours. One hour listening to a survivor uh, giving their testimony, uh, one hour going through the museum, and then one hour uh, on a specific seminar that they've chosen that links in with the school syllabus. So, as I said, we are very, very blessed to have more than 40 survivors who are still active at the museum. Probably half of them were child survivors. So, uh, the youngest is uh, late 70s uh, at this stage, uh, and probably they ranged from late 70s to about mid 80s. Then we have those who were adults or could pass them off themselves off as adults and could therefore be working during that time. And they range in age anywhere from mid to late 80s. We've got a lot in their 90s. And we have Eddie Jacku, who's already 100 and, and was about to turn 101 on the 14th of April, so that's next month. So we are really blessed and privileged to have that many survivors. Uh, you know, we, we, I've been at the museum as the CEO for uh, nearly 20 years. Wow. And as an interesting fact, I moved to Sydney from France because before I came to Australia, I used to work for IBM uh, and I spent eight years working for IBM in Paris on two separate assignments. But my last one was 1997 to 2002 and then I came straight to Australia I actually had nothing specific to do. I just had this visa that I had to take up or lose. And I was very, very lucky that just after I arrived here, they were looking for a CEO for the museum. I didn't have museum experience. I didn't have curatorial experience. But what I did have was very good general management 
experience and people experience and and I was offered the position uh, at that stage probably on a temporary basis but 19 years later I'm still here as it happens I will be stepping down from this position later this year it's been a long time and I think it is time for somebody new but I will still continue at the museum in a different capacity uh, on a foundation that we've established and it will be more kind of fundraising type of thing for the museum and hopefully more part-time rather than my seven days a week 24-7. Wow. But, That's a pretty heavy-going job, seven days a week for the last 19 yeah. years. And you mentioned about the foundation and fundraising. What does that involve? Well, what we've done is we are trying to... Uh, the museum, Our museum, like most museums around the world, runs at a deficit. So what we are trying to do is to build up a foundation which is large enough that the income from that foundation will in fact cover the operating costs of the museum so that we mm. don't consistently have to dip into our funds just to keep going. Uh, the amount of money that one needs is getting bigger and bigger because a couple of years ago you know, one could get 8% on term deposits and that would have we probably didn't need that much money uh, but now as with the rest of the world, interest rates are down to virtually zero, and therefore one needs a lot more money, or you've got to, got to get into risky investments. So, you know, we're having to balance that. But that'll be my main task moving forward, is to help build up that foundation. And it's so well needed. And what is your take on, like, various concentration camps around the world? Um, well, especially in Germany, Auschwitz, for example, being made into a museum, do you think that's a good idea for children to learn about the history or what is your take on it? Yeah, I think it, I think it is very important. Uh, I'll get back to your question in a second, but what we've done in 2017 and 2019, we took tours to, uh, we started in Berlin, where mm -hmm. of course a lot of it really all started, went to Van Zee, and, and then after that, we, we moved to Poland and we, did a, we had our own bus with about 40 uh, museum members on that bus. And we went uh, from all the camps, starting uh, right up at the top near Warsaw with Treblinka and going through, through Poland to Majdanek and then ending up uh, going to uh, in Krakow and going to Auschwitz. And most of the people that were on the tour were, in fact, people who guided the museum. Now, years ago, when I first came here, Holocaust survivors were the ones that used to guide visitors through the museum. Uh, but now, uh, they're a lot older, it's a lot more difficult to do. And in fact, we've, we've, we've redone the whole museum. Uh, we did the, the ground floor, which covers Australian Jewish history and Judaism. We, we converted, we, we redid that about 10 years ago, and the entire Holocaust section was redone about four years ago. Uh, and just a plug for the museum, everybody tells us, local and from overseas, that we are absolutely a world-class museum, based on the layout, based on the artifacts we have, and of course the fact that we're lucky to still have the Holocaust survivors. So we took our guides through on this tour, so that when they are now guiding students in the museum, they were able to talk from the experience of having really been to a lot of these places. And, and I think it's very important for students to go there. Uh, 
largely students go, certainly from Australia, they go on the March of the Living, mm. which they do uh, when they in the second last year of their schooling. So that's very important for them to see that. Uh, younger kids, of course, uh, it's very confronting for them to go through that. Yeah. So we don't necessarily encourage that. When you go to a place like Auschwitz, uh, to a certain extent, there are just too many tourists there. And it's part, some people just see it as a must-see thing that you've got to do as part of a tourist, maybe when you're in Krakow. Uh, and therefore, some of, of really what happened and, and just how... How tough it was over there, I think, may not come across in the same way. But I think it is important for people to, to see what happened and, 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 to, and, to, and to go there. Yeah, and I can totally agree that this is a world-class museum. I came here a few weeks ago when I first met Aviva, your operations manager, and a friend and I, we wandered around, and you could spend a day or a week here and there's always something interesting and everything is so vivid and some of the artifacts you know are really heartbreaking it's very um emotional well i found it anyway very emotional looking at some of the artifacts here and reading about the history and because i'm an empath and can feel people's pain it's um you know a very um, real, real, it, th that's what comes to me. It evokes memories, even if you went there. And the guy that took me around was incredible. And his father had been in Auschwitz and he spoke openly from his heart because, you know, everybody is different. I'm just curious if you had to train the guides because I know not everybody is willing to speak about their experiences in the camp and they can spill a lot of worms. You know, some people block the memories and other people are open to share because there's many people who have written books now besides Eddie. And I think for some of them, it took them years and years and years before they could even speak about what happened because you know the horrors are unimaginable yeah we've got we've got uh probably in the last year more than f about five survivors decided they're in their, their 90 or close or even in their 90s decided to come and talk at the museum mm. and they've never done it before and they've suddenly decided it's now or never because they just need to get it out of their system. A lot of them were not capable of talking to their, to their children, uh, either because they couldn't bring themselves to talk about it, or they really didn't want to traumatize their kids. So a lot of the second generation never knew their parents' stories, and unfortunately mm. their parents are gone, because they didn't want to ask, or their parents didn't want to talk. They just heard the nightmares in the, in the night and so on. Mm. They knew something traumatic had happened, but they just did not get to hear the history. Mm. So I was mentioning that when we started, uh, or 20 years ago at least, yeah. when we, uh, and even when we opened 30 years ago, the survivors themselves used to take uh, mm. visitors around the museum. What has happened now is that the survivors, except for one or two, they tend to talk to groups in an auditorium for an hour, Mm. Uh, and we've now got another group of people that we've trained to be guides in the museum. Uh, they get a lot of training about the Holocaust itself. Mm. They get trained how to talk to groups. 
And it's actually very interesting that when we run a guide training course, we may be looking for about 30 guides, but we'll take 50 or 60 on the course because we know people will drop out. And what's actually interesting is that when you start the course, you see people who look like they are very capable of talking and they can relate and all this kind of thing. And yet, when it comes to finally talking on the floor in front of a group, they just can't do it. Whereas you get people that start off, they look pretty meek and mild and you don't think they can ever open their mouths. When they finally have gone through the course, they make the most incredible guides. So you just really never know how people are going to relate finally. About half of the guides that we have are second generation, so they're able to relate it based not only on their own experiences, but their own, their, their own parents' stories. Whereas a lot of the other guides are not, they have no relationship with the Holocaust as such. And in fact, a lot of them, like me, are South Africans. So it's just very interesting that they've decided that they really want to put in, put in that effort. Just a, just a little bit of information as an aside. Most of the, of the survivors that we had, or that came to Sydney, were either Hungarian or Czech. Uh, not exclusively, but largely. Whereas if you go to the museums in Melbourne, there's a large Polish background. So a lot of the stories we have and a lot of the artifacts we have in, in, in our museum are Hungarian and Czech, whereas uh, in Melbourne you would see Polish. So not exclusively, but just, that's, I guess a couple came and then the rest just followed and built up their communities. Um, so. And, wow, that's interesting. And do you ever swap or share artifacts or do events together? We do some, but not as much as we should because there tends to be a, a thing whereas we put on an exhibition over here and we focus on, let's take the righteous among the nations. So we look mm. at people who were saved by the righteous. And we tend to have a story here about Sydney-based people who were saved. Whereas in Melbourne, they might tend to focus on, on, on people that live over there. Yeah. Uh, we've done exhibitions on, uh, say, the South African community that came to Australia yeah. And we would tend to focus here on the ones that came to Sydney and they would do their own exhibition on the ones that came to Melbourne. It's just kind of the way uh, it turns out. Yeah, well, Sydney, like most countries in the world now, are multicultural. So what, um, what is next for the museum? Are you allowed to say? Yeah, I'll talk about just an exhibition we've got on right yeah. now, which is called Jews from Islamic Lands which really talks about the Sephardi and Mizrahi community that came to Australia. So in Australia, like I guess many other countries, predominantly you've got uh, the Ashkenazi community that came here. And the Holocaust really focuses on Central Europe and, and what happened to the Ashkenazi community as such. Whereas a lot of people in the uh, Sephardi Mizrahi community uh, really don't get a lot of coverage, either just generally in the community uh, and certainly not from a Holocaust perspective. So what this exhibition covers is largely the people that might have been impacted during the Holocaust in the late 44-45, but certainly those who had to flee all the Islamic countries uh, around about the mid-50s. So we've got a, uh, the predominant community here is those that came from Egypt, but we have a lot of other communities that came from Algeria, Morocco, Yemen, and so on, who have come to Australia, and we have focused on that community. So it's a really interesting exhibition 
that we've got on that. If we take a look at what's going to happen next, a really exciting project that we're working on, and we've been talking for many years about, we are very blessed to have the survivor community, but what are we going to do when we no longer have survivors? We have filmed them, uh, they've given testimony uh, in many cases. Uh, just as an aside, after Steven Spielberg made Schindler's List, he set up what was called the Shoah, Founda uh, the Shoah uh, Foundation in Los Angeles on a movie lot. And he went around the world, not him personally, but he had people going around the world and they interviewed 52,000 Holocaust survivors in different countries in many languages. Wow. And in Australia, they did 2,500 testimonies. Australia, by the way, took the third, sorry, the second highest number of survivors per capita, relative to, now I'm saying per capita. Yeah. Israel was the country that took the highest number, probably about 250,000 survivors, and relative to the population of Israel at that point in time, there was a huge number. Uh, Australia took over 30,000 Holocaust survivors, and relative to the community, it was the second highest per capita. They struggled to get in initially, but once, of course, they did, uh, it ended up being the second highest number per capita. There's a debate as to whether Canada might have been second or third, uh, but certainly Australia has a proud record in, the, in that connection. So a very high number of survivors came here, but sadly, the, certainly the older ones, uh, the ones that were adults, are really passing on, or if they haven't passed on, dementia is setting in. Mm. And it's really difficult working at the Sydney Jewish Museum because mm. these survivors are like your own family. It's like your own parents. You get to know them very well. And as I say, when they go through that stages of illness, of dementia and passing on, it really is a very traumatic time for us here at the museum. Uh, so we've been looking at what are we going to do when we no longer have survivors. We filmed them normally uh, in a kind of the way we are having this yeah, filming session right <laughs> now. But one of the projects that we are now working on, which is really very exciting, is that we are creating, and I'm going to use the word holograms, although it's not the preferred word for that. We are doing that with six of our survivors, and uh, we are working closely with the Shah Foundation, who are the leaders in this connection uh, on that. Uh, the Shah Foundation have worked very closely with a number of museums in the United States to create uh, these interactive holograms, and uh, we are, and they've done a lot in, in other countries in Europe as well. So we have done that. It's, it's, it's a very uh, big project. It's a very expensive project. Uh, and what it involves is filming a survivor for a week at a time. So you have, you have just one survivor uh, and they get interviewed for a week. We ask them at least a thousand questions. And the wow. questions that you're asking them are, are the questions that you think are important uh, based on our knowledge of the survivors, but are also the kind of questions that we're saying, what are people likely to ask them in 10 or 20 years' time? Yes. Because in 10 or 20 years' time, somebody's going to stand in front of a survivor and they may be on a screen or they may be kind of sitting on a stage or whatever it is, yeah. and it's an interactive uh, discussion that you're having with them. You ask them a question and you will get an immediate response to your question. So it's as if the survivor is right there, right in front of you. Oh my goodness, that's going to be incredible. 
just to be able to have a lifelike person standing in front of you that was actually in the Holocaust and just to be able to relate to it and as if it's in real lifetime and discuss about their problems that is definitely you know technology at its best and I wish you 100% success with it. Is this the first of its kind or is the association you mentioned they've been doing it in yeah. other countries? There are probably about 20 or 30 that have been created in, in the US for different museums over there. I know Chicago has done a lot in there. Uh, in Illinois, they've done, they've, they've, yeah. they've done a lot over there. Uh, they've done a... In, in New York, I know they have a couple. I know they've done some in Sweden recently, and they said some in South America. But in Australia, this is the first. Wow. And, and as I say, we've done six. So we finished the filming over the last three months. We just finished the filming of six survivors. And what we've done now is to send the testimonies, the week-long testimonies, we've started shipping them to, mm. to the Shoah Foundation, and they, using the software they've created, are loading them into their own systems over there. And what is happening is that they're sending them back to us, and having now filmed them, we're now doing a process where we are clipping the exact question with the answer. So sometimes right. what happened, you asked the survivor a question, and they, they answered not just the question you asked them, but a whole lot of other stuff around yeah. it. And that stuff may be very important for other questions, but not necessarily for this specific question. So you're clipping the exact time of the question, and you're clipping the answer, and you're putting them together. And we're doing that, and we're sending that back to the show. We're working, in fact, in the show foundation uh, software. Right. Uh, and what will happen is, in a few months, they will send us the first of these holograms. Wow. Uh, it'll be a test version. And what we will do is we will start asking questions yes. and ensuring that we're getting the right answer. We know that in many cases we will not because it may be understanding the accents, it may be just understanding the question. So we will continue to ask, and until we've asked at least three to 6,000 questions, uh, they won't yet be satisfied that we've done enough testing. We will do it by ourselves asking questions, we'll ask our museum guides to ask questions, and in fact, we'd even ask museum visitors to ask questions wow. uh, to help us to help us get this thing right. And we know that the more questions you ask it, the, the more accurate it will become. Yeah. So we'll ask questions of the first one of these survivors for about six months. And by the end of the year, we expect to have our first of these uh, ready to go. Wow, and, that's and incredible. Then, yeah. And then each three months, we will probably have another one, having gone through the same process, we'll probably have another one ready to go. And by the middle of 2023, we believe we'll have all six done. Wow, I'm sure like to be asked for the survivors, all those questions, because you said you spent a week and I think they're the, the huge amount of questions, they must have been physically, emotionally and mentally exhausted. Yeah. Um, probably the staff and I think that's what you've got to face with the holograms and you made an in interesting point about the cultures and accents so I guess it's going to be um, important to have people with several different accents to ask the questions and within your staff in the museum how many different nationalities have you got? Uh, we've got I don't know the exact answer now but 
I know that a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago, we had 20 staff members in, in the office and I said, which of you were born in Australia? <laughs> One person put up their hand. Wow. I think now we have quite a few. We've got a lot of South Africans. Uh, they just seem to be involved in, in this kind of business that we're in. Yeah. We, we've got, our staff is 22 full-time equivalent people, mm. but in fact, it's about 30 people, some of whom work full-time like me, and others who work maybe two or three days a week. But in, uh, we've got about 30. Uh, we've got quite a lot of different nationalities. We've got a couple of South, South American people that are here whose background is uh, Spanish-speaking or Portuguese-speaking. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, quite a lot of South Africans, quite a few that are now born in Australia, uh, and people from Israel and so on. So quite a lot of nationalities we have uh, on our staff. Great. We have 300 volunteers at the museum. Wow. Uh, and within that 300, it includes the 40 to 45 survivors that I talked about. Yeah. A lot of those volunteers are guides. A lot of them work in the shop and admissions area, mm. and we have quite a few working in the office as well. And by the way, we have quite a few working for our group, which is called Community Stories, mm. where we help people to write their stories. Uh, it started off with just Holocaust survivors, but now we'll do it with just about anybody because, as you and I talked about earlier, Beverly, yeah. everybody has, an, has a story. Exactly. And, <laughs> and some people write it for mass distribution, yeah. Uh, some people just want to write these stories and create 10 copies to give to their, to, to their families. So we help them. Some have written these stories, but they just don't know how to publish it. Some don't even know how to write the first word. So we work with them. We get somebody to, we'll work with them or we'll get a, uh, one of our uh, kind of editors to sit with them, go through this story with them, eventually write it, rough edits, and get it to the stage where, where they can publish it. Fantastic. So we just, we just recently launched the 100th book that our community stories have done, and this has been going on for about 15 years. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. And because we're videoing this, do you ever video the interviews? Because I think that could be pretty cool, and if um, whoever's helping the editor, then they can you know, have it transcribed and that might make their life a lot easier as well. Yeah, I don't think that they're normally videoed. Mm. Uh, they're normally just uh, done on a, on a recording, on yeah. a recorder, but not video. Uh, but if we really wanted to know that, uh, the people that do it are right next door to where we're sitting right now. <laughs> so you can check that with them. But I think it's, it's mainly oral uh, yeah. that we do. Be because, you know, you come from a IT background, so technology is changing all the time. And I know a lot of computers can actually transcribe it as you're speaking. So you could even speak and record into the computer as well. And there's so many um, software programs that will transcribe as you write. It might not be 100%, but it's a lot easier than someone having to type yeah. if that's what they do. But you mentioned everybody's got a story. So what's your story? Why did you leave? Were you born in South Africa? You know, where yeah. did you grow up? Your family? Uh, most of this, uh, I might have mentioned this before, but most of the Jewish people in South Africa, their background was Lithuanian Jews yeah. who left Lithuania early 1900s to escape the pogroms. Mm. And, and came to South Africa. They left behind a large number of family members 
who uh, they didn't really talk about, so I can't really know who was left behind. And as a consequence of that, the Jewish community in South Africa really generally didn't have a very close link to the Holocaust, but there's no doubt that our parents and grandparents left behind a large number of family members in Lithuania who were completely wiped out during the Holocaust in Lithuania. It's just that we weren't able to maybe pinpoint and say we know about those cousins or aunts or uncles or, or, or whatever that was. So I really left South Africa. A lot of people left for political reasons and people started leaving in the 50s and 60s because of apartheid. Mm -hmm. People started leaving in various decades for different reasons. Yeah. I really left because of security and that's what most people that left in the 90s and 2000 did. And where was, did you go when you left? Uh, well, as it happens, I happened to be in France, but oh. I came, I came, uh, I left Paris and came to, to Sydney. Yeah. I already had a sister living here and, and I came here. As it happens, I have a sister living here, I have a sister living in Israel, and I still have one with her whole family in South Africa. But, right. but my reason for coming here was really because of security and the fact and the fact that I wanted to um, build to build a safer uh, environment for my family. Even if not for my generation, if one was looking down the track, then one would certainly say that the children or the grandchildren were really growing up in an environment which was frankly uh, not safe. It had nothing to do with the fact that a black government had taken over. Mm. It had to do with the fact that in the current environment, things were just getting far too unsafe yeah. for us to see any future there. And where, what did your parents do and where did you go to school and what inspired you to go into IT and eventually led you to do what you're doing now? And did your background help you with... Um, the hologram technology, are you involved in it that way as well? Uh, I have to make an admission, even though I worked for IBM for about 30 years, uh, I was not an IT person, I worked oh. in finance. Oh, so, I see. So okay. most of my background was finance. I mean, I, I could use computers and so on, but I really did not have yeah. that, that, that big IT, uh, IT background. Uh, what my parents, my parents were born in South Africa, their parents had been born in Lithuania, uh, my father initially wanted to become a vet, looking after animals, but uh, during the Second World War, he stopped his studies midway, and then after the war, he just couldn't go back to veterinary science. Mm. So he, um, he, he got into a business uh, with a general dealer shop. Uh, my mother worked in the shop there as well, and they went to live in a small little town where there was not a large Jewish community. Uh, enough for us to have a synagogue and a rabbi, mm. but even in my lifetime over there, the, the Jewish community just dwindled, and eventually mm. there was no there was nobody left at all. And like mm. in many little towns, the synagogue was sold, and the community just left. Right. Uh, I went to school in that little town, up to uh, high school, uh, because in in South Africa there was English and Afrikaans which were the main languages spoken by the white community uh, we spoke English at home but I could speak Afrikaans very well mm. but the junior school was dual medium English Afrikaans for high school it was Afrikaans only so I went to school in a town called in a city called Port Elizabeth which just happened to be the same school that my father went to 
uh, right. I guess many years before me. And most of the English-speaking community would go to a high school somewhere else. Right. I was actually um, blessed because I used to work with the Australian Wallabies, the rugby union team, and I went to South Africa with the team in 1995 that I was doing sports massage and sports medicine, and I was blessed to go to Port Elizabeth. I asked Bob Dry, the coach, could I go with the bus driver because we were traveling and the boys were flying, and I arrived the day before, and I caught up with Simon Poydevern and Nick Farr-Jones, the former Australian captain, and we were in an empty stadium, and they were recording a game between Wales and Japan, and they told me, shh, no screaming, no shouting, and um, it was just magnificent, and we went sailing the next day, and someone very kindly offered me to go sailing, so it was absolutely wonderful, and we took out lots of the um, members of the Australian Rugby Union and the officials, so it was really beautiful. Yeah. The hospitality was incredible. My whole experience of South Africa was incredible. Yeah, look, so. uh, South Africans are very hospitable. Yeah. Uh, the entire community. Uh, yeah. The stadium you went to, by the way, uh, I think was called the Buta Rasmus Stadium in those days. Are you talking about the World Cup that was held in South Africa? Is that yeah, 1995. So were you at Ellis Park? Yes. When the South, the Springbok rugby team beat, <laughs> beat New Zealand, the All Blacks, that was one of South Africa's proudest moments and frankly was a very pivotal moment in bringing the whole community together. Because yeah. prior to then, uh, what used to happen was that the rugby team was really the team of the white apartheid nation yeah. and soccer was the game that was played by the blacks. And they used to support virtually in rugby now, any team that was playing South Africa. In that World Cup, as South Africa got further and further, it brought the whole black community closer and closer. And when Nelson Mandela went into that stadium wearing the number seven jersey of the, of the captain, number six, I think it was, yeah. of the captain, that was an incredible moment in bringing the community a lot closer together. So South Africa winning was one thing, but it was a pivotal moment in the whole political situation in, in South Africa. Yeah, oh, I got goosebumps just thinking about it. Unfortunately, that I wasn't there for the final because um, we went back to Australia when we um, didn't make it to the oh, final okay. round. Yeah. Um, but the opening ceremony was absolutely phenomenal. I couldn't believe how incredible it was with all the um, locals dancing, the, the native Zulu, the Zulu, dancing, Zulu dancing. Dancers, yeah. yeah, it yeah. was absolutely amazing. And just to be in that atmosphere, it's probably one of the best events in rugby that I've ever been to. Yeah, I think that South Africa is one of the only countries that has staged the Cricket World Cup, the Rugby World Cup and the Soccer World Cup. Yeah. Because they really have magnificent facilities and all that kind of thing. So yeah. all of that. And this last year for the World Cup, I was blessed to be with Princess Charlene of Monaco and her brother Gareth. We were in a, a local bar in Monaco celebrating um, the, the win. So we yeah. watched the game. They were, I'm not saying I was a guest of hers. We were all in the same area. I know her brother. And the week before, we had a banter because I dressed up in my 
Welsh jersey he was wearing a South African and we had a good banter unfortunately Wales lost to South Africa but they were the winning team so mm -hmm. when um, South Africa won the whole of Monaco was celebrating so yeah. it was really good yeah I didn't I didn't know of, of her but she was obviously a Springbok swimmer and so we followed that with with great interest but uh... yeah she's doing wonders for the world she has a foundation to teach adults and children to swim because I think around the world every few minutes someone dies of drowning so she's got this most magnificent role and a big heart so it's really nice that she's um, doing so much good for our planet and for our children. I was not aware of that foundation so that's really good to hear. Yeah so um, if you had one message um, to give to the people listening what would it be? Well, the message that, that, that we certainly are teaching at, at our museum mm -hmm. is, that, is that the Holocaust is not just something that happened to the Jews 80 years ago. Uh, it's important to understand how it happened, why it happened, because a lot of those things, the racism and so on, and the anti-Semitism, and just the, the way people carry on in, in today, a lot of the things that were issues in those days were yes survivors saying there's a guy like Eddie Jack you that you interviewed mm. would say that he could never believe that the things that he went through 80 years ago are things that he's hearing again now yeah. so, so the message is if you take the lessons of the Holocaust how it happened why it happened speak up when you see injustices happening which people did not do necessarily then if you speak up and really care for all your fellow members of the community we can all together ensure that something like the Holocaust never ever happens again. The sad reality is that genocide continues to the current day in different mm. places yes. because the world just hasn't learned. But what we try to do as our message is to say, understand how this happened and try and be a better person. We've got, yeah. we've got a, something, one of our taglines at the museum is called, be a mensch. Huh. And a mensch is a good person. In a, right. It's, it's a, it's a Yiddish term that one uses. So that's one of the key things that we try and get people to do is be a mensch. I, I've never heard that word before. That's why I giggled. Yeah. I just thought it must be an anagram for something. No, no, no. A no. mensch is a good person. If oh, you fantastic. see somebody, you'll say, he's really a mensch. He oh. did, he did a, a really good service or whatever it is. So our tagline that we have on a lot of our social media is be a mensch. Fantastic. And talking about social media, how can the listeners find out about you? Well, if you go to our website, if you look up the Sydney Jewish Museum, we've got a website. And if you go onto that, it can tell you about a lot of the things that we are doing right now. Uh, last year in, I say last year in COVID, uh, for us, for many parts of Europe and some COVID is still uh, a very tough reality right now. But when COVID really hit us, in March last year, we moved from educating, as I said, 30,000 school students a year in the museum itself to interviewing them via webinars. So we were still educating, uh, our educators were moving to their homes and giving their lessons. Unfortunately, they could see survivors in the flesh, but uh, we were still able to, to do a lot of that from home. And a lot of the public programs that we do uh, people talking about various after-hours things, a lot of the things that Aviva runs, 
we yep. are doing on still on doing it on Zoom right now. Oh wow! So from all over the world, people are tuning into the webinars that we have. They may not be at the times that necessarily suit uh, people living in Europe, but some of them are very very interesting. Well, I guess with webinars, they're probably recorded, and maybe people can watch the recording and make donations and so forth. Yeah, we do have them recorded, so just go onto our website. There's a lot of interesting stuff that we do, and we would love to have people from Monaco uh, being friends of the museum and, 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 and listening into what we do. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'll certainly share this with the Jewish Museum, the Jewish Center in Monaco. And um, they did um, send a message. My friend Heidi, who is the events organizer there, told me to say, Happy Passover. And I'm going to try and say it in, oh, I can't find my piece of paper. Unfortunately, I can't say it, but uh, find the piece of paper. Well, not to worry. Oh, here. Chag Pesach Shemeg. Okay, so what, you, what you're saying is Chag Pesach Sameach. Chag Pesach Sameach. Thank you very much. Thank you. And to all the non-Jewish listeners and to yourself, have yeah. a great Easter. Thank and you. And uh, happy holidays for, for the spirit in time.